she has the ability and knowledge to kill. And she did with her bare hands, no less. And she confessed to that crime. Snow Files, Season 3, Snow and Tell Zoom Audio, May 14, 2022. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. We love discussing all things Free Jamie Snow with Snow Files listeners live. Join us for a great discussion on last week's episode those pesky 8,000 missing documents, and listen to a first-hand account of Bart McNeil's hearing last week in Bloomington by Bart's cousin, Chris Ross. We also touch on what's coming up in Season 4. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to say a few words and thank you guys for joining us with the story about Bo and and everything that happened to him, and we've really appreciated all of the feedback that you guys gave us. It was just important to me that we honor those last moments that we had him with the story about what happened to him, and uh, I appreciate everybody that's tuned in and all the feedback that you guys have given us. It's a very hard thing, and we've gotten a lot of encouragement from so many of you out there about this, so you know, I appreciate that. And I'm excited for Bart McNeil. Those of you that have been supporting him as you're supporting me, and we're going to get into his case and and share some of the stuff that's been going on with him. They did the same things to me that they did to him. So we're really excited about that. I mean, he's looking like he's going to get an evidentiary hearing. That's a big deal. I just want to thank all of the Snow supporters that came out and was supporting Bart. This is the justice system gone awry, and it's important that we stand together on this stuff. So all of you that took the time to go out and support Bart, I appreciate it. I know he does, too, so thank you so much for taking that time and doing that. I'm still making my way through these documents. I'm about halfway through them, I think. Uh, It's probably going to take a couple of times. Believe it or not, I just went through a document that I've had for years and caught some things that I had not even thought about that I'd missed all these years. Sometimes you've got to review these things over and over before you actually catch the gist of what's going on. So, you know, I'm, I'm making my way through it and uh, I'm encouraged by all of it. So we just appreciate you guys coming along with us on this journey and, you know, stick with us. I've got to believe that, you know, the best is yet to come and I'm, I'm going to enjoy sharing all of the good stuff with you guys that have stuck with us for so long. So just just stick with us. Stand back and stand by. As uh, the great um, Donald J. Trump said. Shut up. And did y'all have any questions about last week's episode? Were you Did that kind of freak you out? Or do you have any thoughts on it? Or any um, enlightenment? I thought it was the most beautiful thing. It was so brutal and beautiful. I was stunned. I was very moved by it, but I was also smiling. I thought, you know, 
that you made it seem like gold was there. Like I really felt like I got to know him. So it was very wrong, but I thought it was so beautiful. And also you had all this great info about how important CPR is and how you need to respond to um, situations like that. It really made an impact. And then that you mentioned that towing of the truck, that was it. You know, you have the presence of mind to tow a truck, but you can't do CPR or call, you know, an ambulance that has the hard equipment. Did anybody have time to watch the whole thing? And I understand if you didn't. I'm going to make about a 20-minute video that is all the relevant things. I just haven't had time. After that happened, I don't know if you saw the search. He just started searching the truck. My question was, there's a part in Jamie's case where in his arrest interview, where he was saying he wanted a lawyer and he asked several times and they didn't stop asking him questions, which that just means as far as that goes, that they never tried to use that because it's not like he did a confession or anything. It would have been like, if he would have done a confession, then he would have said, Hey, tried to ask for a lawyer and blah, 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 and throw that out. But my question was, does it matter if they illegally search the truck without my consent and no probable cause? And that goes with the search and the tow, right? Because it all kind of links together. That question, do they have the right to search it? Okay, I don't think they have the right to search it, but I don't know if there's a, a medical emergency, but I've not found anywhere where it says that that is a reason to search a truck. And then after they searched it and they searched it over and over, and then at the end, him and the lieutenant went through the whole truck, they kept saying over and over and over, wasn't doing drugs, he wasn't slurring. If you watch the whole video, they kept saying that even after that final search, he was like, no, he wasn't slurring. I don't think he was doing any drugs. He would have put it like right here by the thing. I mean, they did everything they could. And then they towed the truck. And I don't understand that. I don't understand why they towed it. That makes me so mad. So it's the search. It's the tow. If you read his record, he had a lot of complaints against him. I tried to put the complaints just in one document to make it easier for y'all to read. But there's one that's really, really freaky. It was a woman, a teacher in a county over, and he was just terrible to her and she felt intimidated. But the most important thing about that report, I thought, was that he lied on his police report. He said that she was using her cell phone or on her cell phone. And the investigation by the Tennessee Highway Patrol said no that there's no evidence to say that she was even on her phone. He had this freaky thing, you know, when he was going through a divorce, he had a restraining order and he went over to his wife's house and the police got involved. And the violation was because he didn't report it. Like if you're a law enforcement officer, you're supposed to report any incident that you have with the police, arrest, trouble, anything like that. And he didn't report it. So most of his violations, I mean, there were other other ones, but most of his violations, he was actually found, uh, you know, they were sustained. In other words, the complainant was found to be right. Um, he didn't report it in what context? What do you mean he didn't report it? He's supposed to report it to his supervisor, to the Tennessee Highway okay. Patrol, if he gets in trouble with the law. Oh, 
uh, as okay. a, as a law enforcement officer because he's a trooper. Uh -huh. So that's what he got in trouble for. It wasn't okay. for his conduct or violating a, a restraining order, or it was just because he didn't have it. Well, it certainly seemed relevant to me. Why would you have the right to pull someone over and basically cause them, you know, a medical problem because of being pulled over? So I'd want to get to the heart of that. Absolutely. You know, I believe that there needs to be probable cause. I don't think we should be living in a police state. I was just in the airport, just, uh, you know, flying out to Chicago and back and was in uh, about a four hour layover in Las Vegas. And, you know, I'm sitting there and all of a sudden this dog comes, you know, snooping me, smell him and on the back of my neck. You know, they're running police dogs and stuff through these airports. I don't know if they're looking for bombs or drugs or what, but still it's like, as I'm laying there trying to get some rest, I didn't expect a dog to be sniffing the back of my neck. <laughs> I didn't feel comfortable with that. It's like, I got through TSA. I got through the checkpoint. You know, they have lots of indicators and things to do that with. I don't need you now to be subjected to a dog. So yeah, I don't believe it's right. So what did you think about the time? Uh, do, you, do you agree that that was unreasonable, uh, that he should have responded sooner? It was over five minutes before he even gave chest compressions. And I think yeah. it took him entirely too long to get him out of the truck. And then how many times did he have to check for a pulse before starting compressions? I was so livid. I was literally screaming at my phone, like, you're a effing idiot, dude, start the compressions. And the reason that I wanted to, to do that audio, like I said, in the podcast was because that's what I was hearing. And I couldn't tell if he was helping him or not. And I needed a sanity check, too, because I was in such distress. But you know what I came away with? Especially when I got the first cam, first cam I got was the body cam of the uh, Sweetwater Police Department. I remembered things even that night out of order, or I thought I said something immediately and I said it later. And I thought about Danny Martinez and I thought about Pilo and I thought about Gutierrez and the Lunas and people who were saying that they saw something and it was just like that. I mean, I was on the phone with Bo for all that time and there for all that time, that was a lengthy event. And I remember things out of order. What I kept thinking when I was on the phone with him was he, he, he keeps talking to me. He, he's talking like I, I've been trained in CPR. So I, it's very physical. And when he said, I know, ma'am, the ambulance is on its way, ma'am. After all that time, I was like, I knew he hadn't been helping him, assisting him. I just knew it. And I was just like, I can't. I know I talked to Jennifer soon after this. And I was just like, I just couldn't. I, I, am I crazy? You know, I know that he wasn't helping him because I've been trained on this and I know it. And that's like when I saw that police report and I was like, it says he has help. He didn't, you know, he didn't find out if he had heart problems till after he got to the hospital, after he had said it all those times. I was like, I can't, why is he lying? Why is he lying? And then to, to see the video is really, I was like, wow, he really wasn't doing anything. <laughs> I mean, literally. 
standing there and I was talking to Gracie last night and she said uh she said he was poking him with a flashlight does anybody remember that I'd have to go back and watch it again like you're just a, a dog laying on the side of the road poking you and seeing if you're awake uh she said he was poking him with the flashlight I'm like oh no I need to include that in my complaint because I don't remember seeing that so as far as that whole response time, I, I just feel like it shouldn't have taken that long. I feel like it's good that the episode got back out of there because I've just gotten so much more feedback. It's yeah. always good to have more eyes on something. A really interesting thing that uh, Gracie was talking to one of her coworkers who's 15 years older than her, you know, got a kid and a young family. And she said, how did he have a firearm when he had a restraining order? When I had one against my ex-husband, he wasn't allowed to have a gun. And that's the law in Tennessee. And I thought, oh, wow, that's brilliant. But I thought, mm, I bet you there's an exemption. And there is for law enforcement and military. They can only use it when they're on duty. You know, that was something that I hadn't thought about. I have a question. What does a trooper do? Is it just for traffic? It's highway patrol, like our interstate system. Mm-hmm. That's why I didn't know what he was doing in Sweetwater because he yeah. was in town when he saw him. I, I don't know. It's statewide, but also they're assigned to certain districts and they patrol the highways, our interstates. So you have to think that he's responded to a lot of wrecks, a lot of people that were hurt. They're not in city cops. Like he called for backup for a local police officer. And everybody else was fantastic. It was just him. It had to be the, the worst fucking luck ever for him to have the shittiest person that he could have had be the only person that could have saved him at that time. Because those minutes were so critical. If it was a cardiac arrest, which we think it was, but still. We wait for the autopsy. Again, you know, we talked about the drugs and they kept asking about drugs. I told him he did uh, uh, CBD and marijuana. And I told him all that. And Chris, weed isn't legal in Tennessee. So it wasn't like I was trying to hide anything. Mm -hmm. And the preliminary results, drug tests were that he, well, he had CBD. Just like I told him five times. That's what he had in his, in his system. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, he seemed very useless for anything. Like, what is he doing as a trooper, just driving up and down, looking intimidating? Why did he, what, and why do they even need weapons? I don't think that our traffic control, they don't have weapons here. Because what would they need it for to give tickets? They, no? Everybody has weapons. Law enforcement have weapons here. What this, would they need them this, for? This is the USA. Yeah, um, I know. I know. It's just we love like, our guns. He, he just shows up. He doesn't know how to. Well, maybe he can pull someone over, but it just stops there. He does everything wrong and he has complaints against him. He, he can't even contact the right people. He was trained in CPR. Now we know that because I got his record. So we know that he had a CPR professor trainer training in 2019. In 2017, he had another refresher. Then before that, he had CPR and first aid. And then why are we paying for them to have first aid and CPR if they're not even going to use it? If they're patrolling the roads, like you said, they will come back, uh, you know, 
around REC, they would be first responders to any traffic situation that maybe doctors would be more safe than doctors patrolling the highways <laughs> and probably, you know, they could give manage to figure out how to give a ticket as well. It's just a suggestion. Yes. Yeah. I mean, good, good point. If they're going to train someone in CPR recently, like within the last 24 months or whatever, and that person's trained at taxpayer expense to react based on their training and they fail to do so, then I think that that's a real bad no-no and you have somehow transgressed. You know, you're trained. You're like a fireman. You're supposed to respond to that fire, not just sit there on the wayside and look idly while the house burns down with the uh, the occupants inside. So that definitely, I think that's a great point raised. I'm ready now to file a complaint and I'll share that, but we want to go full force back into Jamie's case, finish up the alternative suspects and get back on track. There is so much going on and that's going to be going on this summer. Like with Bart's case, in Jamie's case, they seem to be running in parallel, although they're at different levels. Stacy, did you go to the hearing this week? No, I didn't. No, you probably read some of the coverage about it. Yeah, I've been seeing the coverage all over. Yeah. So, what are they saying about it, Stacy, in Bloomington? Is anybody talking about it, just like on a personal level? What kind of feedback can you give us? Everybody just thinks it was her. Everybody pretty much has the same feeling that this man spent 23 years of his life in prison for something he didn't do. Okay. Well, I just wanted to start with that. Hi, Chris. Hey there. Hey, uh, thanks for also for some of uh, Snow supporters coming out to the hearing. Really appreciate it. There's a couple of folks that uh, took the time to be there. So appreciate it greatly as does Bart. If you could just give us a recap. And if it's okay with you, if people have questions, yeah. they can just pop in. And you might just want to give us a brief overview of the case for those who are not familiar. Sure. Well, uh, for starters, Tam, Alex, and I have been working for a similar amount of time on our respective cases. And I am the mirror to Tam Alexander with respect to my cousin, Bart McNeil, who was wrongfully convicted of murdering his three-year-old basically a couple of years before Jamie was targeted and convicted by the same court, same city, same county of McLean as Jamie was. And so what my cousin's case was, is he was wrongfully convicted of smothering his then three and a half year old daughter. About 10 weeks prior, he had lived formerly with a girlfriend for about three years and he got tired of it. So he hung it up and basically broke up with her. And the next morning he wakes up and his little daughter is smothered to death. Everyone came that morning and Bart didn't even think that this couldn't be a murder. He just thought that, wow, something terrible happened. She was up and at him the night before. Perhaps it was an asthma attack. After all, she had had one the year before that required hospitalization and had, you know, nebulizer equipment and stuff like that. But she hadn't suffered, you know, about recently. But it was, a you know, hot, warm, humid, muggy, kind of a June night in Bloomington. So they took the daughter away. And then later that afternoon, he started to notice that something just didn't quite seem right. It, what got his attention was this fan that normally was propped up in the bedroom window of his daughter was mysteriously on the floor. And that then brought his attention to the window itself and the condition of it. And he saw that, wow, this window has got two holes in it, cut into it, that would allow someone from the outside to put their fingers in in order to remove the screen in order to gain access to that bedroom at night. And he sure as hell knew that those holes didn't exist the night before because 
he wouldn't have slept in that condition himself. He would have closed the window or something because he wouldn't have let his daughter be in that situation. So the police came back. They found out, sure enough, there's holes here. And part of civilians, the one that's more observant than they are. They're now a little bit pissed because he's the one that's calling your attention to a murder, a murder that usually doesn't happen except for every two years in the city of Bloomington, the county of McLean. And they were pissed at Bart. And they started to then start to build a case against the guy because they don't like this guy. And basically, they build a case on it all based upon the fact that there was the presence of spider webs in the corner of the window sill and the screen. And yet, when they observed these spider webs concretely and got them on film and photographed them, basically, it was about 20 hours after the break-in took place. So that's what we learned inhabitant spiders that have been going on for hundreds of millions of years do when their web is disturbed is they come out of hiding, they come out of their crevice, and they remake their web. And so that's simply what the police saw. They were observing the fact something that, you know, naturally happens and has been for hundreds of millions of years. But in any event, based on that evidence, Bart was believed to have been in a sealed apartment with no other entry possible. Never mind the fact that not only were these, these two holes in the screen, but they're also the screen was out of its track. The little window latches on either corner were not properly in their location. And the window screen frame was bent. And as a result of this, and on video, and it's caught on video, when the police were removing the screen, it fell out on gravity alone. And so basically you have prosecutors and police who are trying to create one narrative when the video off graphic and actual crime scene photos tell exactly the opposite. And because he had a court-appointed attorney who failed miserably and was more concerned about his probably $10,000 a month check, my cousin has now been in jail for 24 years for a wrongful conviction. As a result of them getting it wrong, they let the wrong person go, which was Mizuk Nallen, his ex-girlfriend, who Bart then predicted in 2002, 10 years ago, that she would go on to murder again, likely a child or a woman. And sure enough, 11 years later, she did just exactly that. She manually strangled her mother-in-law in Bloomington, Illinois, in McLean County. And this was in 2011. And that's what brought me into the case and others in the case, including two innocence projects that are now representing Bart. Here's how, here's how I understand it. He's going to get an evidentiary hearing. Um, yes. What they're arguing about is what's going to be allowed in that evidentiary hearing. And That's right. Carl Leonard, oddly, now we still have the same attorneys, <laughs> you know, the same yeah. uh, people. The small world. So, uh, the Carl, small world there. He's, he's being represented by Carl. Carl is in court. And did the arguments exclusively, I might add. Yeah. So, uh, as I understand the posture, they're going to have an evidentiary hearing, anyways, which is just um, people don't get them in McLean County ever. So, that's just an amazing thing in itself. And the other thing is the state only wants to bring in the confessions from Masuk. Mm-hmm. And you can explain more about that in a second. And Carl said, we want to bring in everything, which I loved when I read that. I was like, yes, because our case is cumulative. And the fact that he said that makes me think, okay, well, maybe he's going to go with us on that because that's been a big sticking point because they prosecuted Jamie on cumulative circumstantial evidence. And when one of those cards falls out of the deck, the other one doesn't hold up. Well, that's how they prosecuted him. But in appeals, if we find one thing, they're like, everything standalone, standalone, standalone. That doesn't mean that he didn't do that. 
I was really excited when I saw that Carl was going to argue that way. I'm hoping that he takes that approach with Jamie's case because it really needs to be cumulative. And I can't wait to hear this from Chris because the fact that they just want to bring one thing in is such bullshit. That's such bullshit. When you're convicted on a whole bunch of other stuff, you can't just bring one thing in. They're introducing, you know, the evidence that they think that they have greatest likelihood in which to attack and discredit. Uh, And they can get that out of the way, then they're victorious. So out of eight cited pieces of new evidence that was in Bart's petition in uh, February of last year, 2021, the state now wants to only allow two of those eight items and only admittedly that they're required by Illinois law to take a look at this confession. So that's part of their strategy. You know, what can we beat and what can we then, we win and we win at all costs. We're not going to make a decision based on a full deck. Now, the terminology that you were using, Tam, that exists probably somewhere in the court record of Jamie Snow's case, I would imagine it's therein lies in within Bart's court record as well. And as quoted by Tina Griffin, the assistant state's attorney who wrongfully convicted both of these men, she claimed it was that the conviction for Bart was based on the, quote, totality of the evidence, end quote. The totality of the evidence. And so now Mary Cole now promotes that it shouldn't be on the totality of the evidence. It only should be on, you know, a slender sliver of the evidence, you know, damn the totality of the evidence and full speed ahead. So in any event, yeah, just as you said, Cammie, the state wants to have it, you know, both ways. One way in the era of 1998 and the time at which Jamie Snow was convicted and another era in a different way in which to think in today's modern times, which is just ridiculous. I totally agree with that. And that's exactly how it was in our case, the totality of the evidence. And you can see as we went through the snow files, painstakingly went through all of this, this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece. And we have a whole episode on the closing arguments where she is really just trying to pull those together. So in other words, if there's two witnesses and one is saying something and the other one is corroborating it, and witness B is found to have been incredible or discredited, how can witness A be correct too? You know, they can't corroborate that. We have a lot more people and it's yeah. different, it's different, yeah. different cases, but it's the same thing. It's, it's the yeah. same thing. And we're going to go over all of these cases next season. We're super excited about that. And we're going to go over that suppression hearing that we were talking about too very soon. So we're going to highlight all of that next season and also highlight the people involved, Tina Griffin, Charles Renard, what they got out of it, what the police got out of it and that. So I'm sorry to interrupt, Chris. We can we can go back. What I'd love to hear is what eight pieces of new evidence that they have. Can you like briefly go over those for people who haven't read the petition? Basically, uh, when Bart's attorneys prepared their petition uh, seeking a new trial, which was filed in February of last year, they cited eight new pieces of evidence, any one of which standing on their own two feet could possibly, you know, require that Bart granted a new trial. Because what the state's looking for in getting a new trial is evidence that is considered new, that wasn't available at the time that Barton was convicted in 1999. And also evidence that's relevant enough that it might have changed the mind of a jurist, even though Bart had a bench trial before a lone fact finder, which is the judge. In any event, the eight items that were cited was the science 
that Christina McNeil was likely not sexually molested, which was important in Bart's case because the state used that to paint that that's the motive, that the little girl was coming of age, that Bart was therefore concerned because he was going to be able to start talking to people. And even though there was no physical evidence relating to his ever having you know, laid a finger on his daughter, they insinuated that. And so the newspapers all picked it up and that was the common current. So everyone in the community then thought that, yeah, this is a pervert that, you know, molested his little daughter, even though there's no evidence to suggest that. And they weren't ever, they never leveled charges either because they knew they could never win them. So they just basically put this big albatross and hung this over this guy named Bart McMeal. So it's really hard for people to walk in this guy's footsteps when you think about, you know, that coming out of the gate. So that's one. The other is a piece of medical evidence that the murder may not have even been a murder, basically based on the evolving science. Everyone's probably heard of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. This is SUDS, sudden unexplained death syndrome happens in toddlers just as it happens in infants. So it could be that she just, you know, passed away for unknown circumstances, just as it is with infants. The other is the time of death. So the same doctor also said, well, if we were to take a look at her gastronomic contents, that's those are unreliable. So it could be very that uh, she died at a later period of time, which would comport then to when Bart had told everyone that she likely died, which was a post-midnight hour. The state had basically, just about a month or two before the actual trial took place, tendered their first firm assertion as to when the death took place, which they asserted took place at about 10 p.m. at night, which is a time in which Bazook supposedly had an alibi. So they knew that, and that's why they wanted to basically put in the recommendation that Christina had died by, say, 10 p.m. at night so that Mazouk would have an alibi at that moment in time. So that's pretty ridiculous. The next piece of evidence, or two pieces of evidence, were what Tammy just mentioned, which was there was a time where during Titus memorial service that Mazouk's then-husband, Don Wang, came up to two separate individuals and basically told them that Mazouk, in a former fit of anger, confessed to murdering Christina, and they were willing to uh, sign affidavits to that effect. And that is the two things that the state is now saying that they'll agree to hold an evidentiary hearing. Moving on to the other pieces of evidence, basically we have the evidence of Linda Tida being murdered, strangled by Mazouk, by asphyxiation no less. So both murders are asphyxiation related. Both of them are a murderer perpetrated against someone who can't really defend themselves all well. One being Linda Tida, an elderly woman, 70 plus years of age. And then you had on the other side of the spectrum, little three and a half year old Christina McNeil, who probably weighed, you know, all but 35 pounds uh, when she was smothered to death at that age. So you have that, which was evidence that was unknown. She has the ability and knowledge to kill, and she did, and she confessed to that crime. So with her bare hands, no less. So that should be admitted as evidence. The other has to do with Suzanne Burns, who was a neighbor that lived across the street from Mizzou, and she came forward. She recalled seeing her at a post-midnight hour at a time that Mazuka told the authorities and they testified under oath that she was fast asleep that night when this woman who was a postal service worker basically recalled very specifically that night that Mazuka was, sure enough, you know, up at around 3 a.m. in her storage closet, which goes against, you know, everything that she's testified to. The other then is DNA related. So they were able to subject the fitted bedsheet in which the daughter lay upon what we would refer to morbidly as the deathbed as having Mazouk's, one of her hair follicles was on it, located on a pillowcase that had been recently laundered. And the other was her touch DNA, 
her skin cells were there. And in 1999, DNA analysis hadn't evolved that far. They could do things like saliva, you know, from a cigarette butt or a can or fingernail clippings, but they hadn't yet perfected touch DNA. So that came later. And so basically, Mazouk's touch DNA was found on low enough in six quadrants of this bedsheet. All of these findings came to light around 2016, 2017. So this case has been a long way in the works. And uh, now that also is you know, part of why BART should deserve a new trial. Before, there was no physical connection to Mizzou having been present. Now there is a physical connection. Her DNA is over the bedding. And as I had mentioned in a press conference immediately following the hearing yesterday, I said, yeah, you know, this guy was balding at the time. Look at his charging photo. And so, you know, if he were as the state would like to present that those sheets were dirty now. And of course, that's why Mizzou's DNA is found on it. Why did they find Barton's hair, for example, on it? The guy was balding at the time. So there's a lot of uh, evidence that's going to come forward and it can't come forward until there's an evidentiary hearing. So I believe that it would be impossible for uh, the judge in the case, looking at all the facts before him to, you know, truly say, well, yeah, we don't need to look any further at you know, the DNA and the presence of Mizzou on this bedding, or we don't have to look at Suzanne Burns, you know, any further because the state's argument in their motion to dismiss with Suzanne Burns was that because she looked out and saw Mizzou and Mizzou wasn't wetter than a rat because it was stormy that night, therefore she shouldn't be, you know, listened to as a witness. The reality is that the rain didn't happen until about 3 a.m. in the morning and Mizzou had done her deed sometime between 12.30 a.m. when Bart last saw Christina and 3 a.m. likely when the rains came. So, you know, she's got basically a baseless argument to begin with. So given the facts as they are, how would the judge right now early prematurely uh, say that Suzanne Burns shouldn't make her way to the stage three evidentiary hearing? So I'm right now, you know, buoyed that the judge is going to do the right decision. Uh, we unfortunately, we find yet again that the wheels of justice turn slowly. The judge has promised that he hoped to make a decision within 60 days, but gave the caveat that he might, you know, roll into another week or so. But it's, you know, urgent business as far as he's concerned in terms of his workload and what he has time for. So that's where we're at. And I'm really optimistic that things are going to proceed for Bard. I just want to let y'all know and let everyone out there know that all of these cases, as you'll see in our next season, are closely aligned. We need to support Bart's efforts because every win for Jamie is a win for Bart and every win for Bart is a win for Jamie. That's why we're doing this next season because we think it's really important to expose the corruption during that administration and to put pressure on them to fix it because they didn't do it. We've been fighting them all this time and they've been fighting our cases all this time. That's why I think it's important for us to continue, especially throughout the summer with these things going on. We can't sit back and go, well, Bart's got two months to wait for that hearing. We need to be doing everything we can to share his story, doing everything we can, making sure that we're on freebart.org, a mailing list or the Facebook page or wherever we're going to get information, make sure that we're involved in any campaigns because sometimes things come up that we can participate in very quickly if it's, you know, a letter writing campaign or just sharing something 
all of that is important as we move through these other cases and as we move in the summer. An evidentiary hearing is one shot. It's really hard to get one, especially in McLean County. Some states, you know what, you automatically get one. But it's really hard to get one in McQueen County, and he's got an opportunity. And we yeah. need to make sure that everybody in the public is making some noise about his innocence and them doing the right thing because they do watch, they do see. And it's really important yeah. for them to be held accountable because it's so easy for them to do what they yeah. want. I really hope that he lets all that evidence in because I yeah. think that's going to be critical. That's, that's just going to be crucial. This is important. Our alliance, Tam, Alexander, and ourselves, and we definitely hope that, you know, the four of us, including Jamie and Bart, will be able to have, you know, a dinner and drinks together someday. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, I guess. And you guys, thank you for coming in. Yeah, it's good to see you back in form and looking strong and uh, ready, ready to keep going. Somebody hiding something. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> always hiding something, Jennifer. <laughs> we invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Visit our episode page for links to Bart's website, Facebook page, and to the podcast's Suspect Convictions by Scott Reeder, a deep dive into the Bart McNeil case. Thanks for joining us for another Snow and Tell Zoom discussion. It is so good to be back, and we appreciate you more than you may ever know. And don't forget, peace and justice for Jamie Snow. Think it, say it, write it every single day. We'll see you next time on Snow Files.